scripture will be taken from John 17, 20 through 23. John 17, 20 through 23. I do not pray for those alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be ones, one as you, Father, and in me, and I in you, that they also may become in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. And I in them and you in me that they may be made perfect in one and that the word may known that know that you sent me and I love them as you loved me. It's good to see everyone here tonight. We appreciate so much your presence, especially those who are visiting. It is a rainy night and we're glad that you have made the decision to be here tonight. We're always glad to have the opportunity to come together. As Thomas said, we are a little bit thin tonight, and hopefully, hopefully if some did not come because of sickness or illness, they'll be able to return next week. We're going to be looking at John 17 tonight. I appreciate David stepping in for Billy. Billy had mentioned to me earlier today that his brother was having some health issues and he might have to be placed in an assisted living complex. And so it was somewhat ironic to learn that he fell earlier today, and so Billy's not able to be with us, but we appreciate David. Tonight I want us to think about the Lord's Prayer. Jesus was a man of prayer. He oftentimes prayed to his Father in heaven. In Matthew chapter 6, we have the Sermon on the Mount, a part of the Sermon on the Mount. And in chapter 6, Jesus sets forth what I believe to be the model prayer. In chapter 17, we have the Lord's Prayer. And so we're going to be talking about that tonight in a moment or two. I do want to mention that there were some that went to the Olive Grove Terrace today. I was not able to make it, but we appreciate those that did go, especially our young people. We appreciate all that support that. And I know that the residents in that particular complex, they appreciate so much our visit from month to month, and if you have the opportunity, I would encourage you to go and to be a part of that 45-minute singing. It brightens their day, and I know that it will brighten yours as well. Tonight we look at John 17, verses 20 through 23, and we think about the Lord's Prayer. I want us to begin tonight by discussing the Lord's plea for unity. The Lord's plea for unity is summed up in the phrase that they all may be one. Jesus desires unity. The Lord's desire, the Lord's, the Lord's plea is that we, as believers, that we would stand in unison together. I want us to begin by talking for a moment or two about his prayer for unity. And note, if you would, the occasion of this prayer. In verse 1 of chapter 17, we find Jesus praying to God the Father. And he is standing in the shadow of the cross. Jesus would say, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And so here is Jesus approaching death. And in the final hours 
of his physical life here on planet earth, he bows his head to God the Father and prays. And specifically, he prays for unity among those who would believe on him. Let me ask this question tonight. If life were coming to an end for you here on planet earth, what would you be praying about? I suspect that for most of us, we would be concerned about our family members, about our loved ones. And so it might be the case that we would spend a good portion of the time that we have left here on planet earth praying to God the Father that he would bless our family members, that he would give them wisdom, and that he would stand by them. Well, Jesus is praying for his family. His prayer is that those who would believe on him would stand in unison, that they would be united. Listen, if you would, to what he says. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe on me through their word, that they all may be one. Jesus desires unity. But let me call attention to the precedence for unity. And really here what we have is an observation about his prayer. Look at verses 21 and 22. Jesus said that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. That they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them, and you in me. That they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me, and have loved them, as you have loved me. Jesus here talks about the relationship that he has sustained with his heavenly father. And there is a sense of oneness between God the Father and Jesus the Son. When we talk about God the Father as the architect of the redemptive plan, it took Jesus the Son to function as the agent by which that plan would be consummated. Listen again to what Jesus said. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. Jesus and God the Father were on the same page. They were completely united in terms of the redemptive plan. God the Father devised this plan and Jesus Christ willingly said, I'm willing to come and to fulfill that plan. Back in John chapter four at verse 34, Jesus said, my work is to do the will of him who sent me. In chapter six, verse 38, Jesus would say, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. In Hebrews chapter five, verses eight and nine, the Bible says, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became unto all them that obey him the author of eternal salvation. It took Jesus coming to do the will of the Father, 
in order for heaven's plan to be consummated. And so there was this oneness, this sense of unity between God the Father and Jesus the Lamb. And that is a precedence for us. And Jesus is saying that just as he and the Father were one, just as they were on the same page and united, that we as his people, we are to be united, we are to be on the same page. There's a second thing I want you to see in our study. And that is the Lord's pattern for unity. And this is summed up in the words of Jesus in verse 20. When he said, who will believe on me through their word. What word? The apostle's word. Jesus is talking about that standard that will bring about unity in the religious world. What is it that's going to unify the apostle's doctrine, the apostle's word? In Acts chapter two, verse 42, the Bible says, speaking of the early disciples, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and prayers. The apostles' doctrine is simply the word given unto those inspired men by the Holy Spirit. Do you remember Jesus said to the apostles in John 16, verse 13, Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth? God has given unto us everything that pertains to life and godliness, according to what Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Everything that you and I need to enjoy life and godliness in order for us to sustain and maintain a relationship with God the Father and Jesus the Lamb has been given unto us. That's why we talk and stress the Bible. That's why we emphasize the importance of this book. This book comes to us by revelation. Holy men of God, as Peter said, spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The word of God did not originate in the minds of men. It's not something that men and women dreamed up or thought up. It's not on a plane equal to a fable or some fictitious story. But this is the divine truth of the living God. Paul said every scripture, all scripture, is inspired of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. Now, let me just talk for a minute about some of the barriers to unity. I don't think that it's anything new to say to those of us who are assembled here tonight that we live in a world that is fractured religiously. When we look around at the religious world, not just in this community, not just in this state, not just in the United States, but globally, what do we see? We see a fractured religious world. Why is that? Why is it that we have not honored the will of God when it comes to unity? Why is it that we're not all on the same page? When you look at the New Testament, one of the things that you'll find is that there were barriers to unity in the first century. 
A good example of that would be found in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 at verse 10, and Paul here is writing, to those who had been sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, according to chapter 1 verse 2. Down in verse 10, he said, Now I plead with you or beseech you by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For, he said, it's been reported unto me by them which are the household of Cloy, that there are contentions among you. And some, he said, are saying, I am of Paul. I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, I am of Christ. Paul then asked this question, is Christ divided? Well, the answer would be no. And then he asked a second question. He asked, was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Well, the answer would be no. Paul goes on to say, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. Why was that? Because there were people that were cultivating a following. On what basis? On the basis of those who had baptized them. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul will say, God did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Sometimes people take that and they say, well, God is saying baptism is not important. No, that's not, what, that's not what Paul is saying. That's not what God's saying. What God is saying through the apostle Paul is, the, is that the administrator, the person who does the baptizing is inconsequential. Inco In other words, that's not important. The individual that baptizes another person into Christ, that's not what's important. What's important is that somebody's baptized into Christ so that their sins might be washed away. But in the first century, there were people that were cultivating a following after men. As I said a moment ago, Paul points out, some were saying that they were, that they were of Paul, some of Apollos, others of Cephas. And then there were those that were saying, I'm of Christ. Well, Paul said, what you need to do is you need to be united. Well, what's the basis then upon which they can be united? In verse 10, he said that you all speak the same thing. Now, we're going to talk about that in just a minute. What are some of the barriers to unity as we speak? Why is it that religiously we are on different planes? Why is it that we, for whatever reason, do not stand together in unison? Why is it we're not united in this city or in this state for that matter? I would submit unto you that one of the reasons that we are not united is because there are any number of different creeds, manuals of faith, confessions of faith that have been penned by men. In no way would I impugn their motives. But I want you to think about this for a minute. If somebody were to pin a creed, I have, I brought with me tonight three examples of what I'm talking about. I have three different creed books. And what these books do 
or outline their doctrines, their covenants. Now let me ask this question. If what they say is less than what the Bible teaches, then we don't need it, do we? If what these men say in their creed books or manuals of faith is more than what is recorded in Scripture, then the conclusion is we don't need those things either. Well, what about if what they say is exactly what the Bible says? Well, my question would be, why do we need, why do we need them then? Why? Because we have the Bible. You can read these three books, and here's, here's the tragedy. They're probably not going to say the same thing. You see, here's one creed book or discipline. Here's another, and here's a third. I haven't even touched the hem of the garment. Well, what's my point? The point is there is a basis upon which we can be united in the world, religiously speaking. But it's not going to be on the basis of these books. It's not going to be on the basis of the doctrines and commandments of men. But it is going to be on the basis of what the Bible teaches. Listen to what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 4 at verse 11. Peter said, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. All Peter is saying is, whatever we preach, whatever we teach, whatever we practice, it needs to have a thus saith the Lord attached to it. If we're on the same page biblically, then where are we going to be biblically? We're going to be united, aren't we? Now, back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 at verse 10, Paul said, I beseech you in the name of the, Lord, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul here is inserting divine authority. He's saying, by the authority of Jesus Christ, I am pleading with you, I am beseeching you to all speak the same thing. That there be no divisions among you. Does God in heaven want unity among his believers? Absolutely. Jesus prayed for it. The apostles pleaded for it. And the New Testament church, they sought to be united in matters of faith and practice. So the word can bring about unity. Paul said that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. There are two things that I would call attention to. In Ephesians chapter 4, in verses 1 through 3, Verses 1 through 3, there are what I would call attitudes that make for unity. We talk about the church. The church is comprised of people. We are the church. It's not the building, but rather the people who make up the church. Those are the ones that are recognized by Almighty God. Well, in verses 1 through 3, there are some attitudes that are to be prevalent among believers in order to maintain peace and unity in the local congregation. He said that we are to demonstrate humility, gentleness or meekness. 
and long-suffering, forbearing with one another in love. And then he said, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Unity is not an accident from the vantage point of a local congregation. And for that matter, when we look at the church universally. But rather it takes men and women dedicated to being united. The intent is that we would do everything within our power to be united. Sometimes individuals, because we belong to the body of Christ and because we, because we come from different backgrounds and because we think differently, sometimes there are differences of opinion. Sometimes there are things that are said and done that maybe I don't agree with. Well, that's where Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3 comes into play. Paul here is saying that in matters of opinion, we need to exercise liberty. We need to, we need to demonstrate a humble disposition. We must be long-suffering with our brothers and sisters in Christ we are to forbear or bear with one another or put up with one another in love. Why? Because we belong to the same body. Because God desires unity. But then in verses 4 through 6, there are what could be called the absolutes of unity. Now we're talking about something that can ultimately bring about true, genuine unity. Paul said there is one body and one spirit even as you are called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all, through all, and in you all. Let me just make a couple of comments here. The one spirit is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has given us the one faith. What is the one faith? It is that comprehensive system of truth that has been once for all delivered unto the saints, according to Jude 3. The Holy Spirit is the one that directed men to pen the Bible. As Peter would point out in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. So the one Spirit has given us the one faith. The one faith tells us about the one Lord. That's Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus is vested with all authority. Jesus said, all authority, all power has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. Matthew 28, verse 18. Jesus further said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? So as one having all authority, we are to hear him, as God the Father said in Matthew 17, 5. The one spirit has given us the one faith, which tells us about the one Lord and the one God, that is, God the Father, and all the remarkable attributes of God the Father. The fact that he is the architect of the redemptive plan, that he has loved us as members of the human family and sent his son to die for our sins. The one faith also tells us about the one baptism. The one baptism is what places us in the one body, which is the saved, according to Ephesians 5, verse 23. Those who are in the one body have the one hope, 
that is eternal life. These are absolutes. Now when Paul penned these words, when, when you looked at the religious world in the first century, you did not see a religious world that was fractured as we know it today. But I think about the prayer of our Lord and Jesus is looking across the span of time. His prayer is that we would be one, that we would be united in our belief system. I want you to think with me in the third place about the Lord's purpose for unity. As we talk about the Lord's purpose for unity, drop down and look at verse 21 because his purpose is simply stated, that the world may believe that you sent me. What about the world in which we live today? When the world looks at those of us who claim to be followers of God and we have this belief system and that belief system and this church and that church and this organization and that organization, what does it say to people? What does it say to people that, that don't even believe in God? Is it not the case that they can use our division against us. I want to talk for just a minute about the plight of pseudo-unity. What do I mean when I talk about pseudo-unity? The idea is that we just agree to disagree. In other words, there are things that you believe, there are things that I believe, there are, there are other things that somebody over here believes, and so we just agree to disagree. Well, may sound good, but is it biblical? Is it what God in heaven would want? Listen again to what Jesus said. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe on me through their word. There is a standard. That standard is the word of God. Let me ask this question. What are we going to be judged by? I held up just a minute ago three different books by three different religious organizations. Am I going to be judged on the basis of what these men have written? No, Jesus said, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. John 12, 48. Jesus emphasizing there that we're going to be judged on the basis of truth. Look at verse 17 in John 17. Jesus said, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. There is a premium on truth as revealed in Scripture. So, what about this idea of just agreeing to disagree? Do you think that's what Paul was telling the people in Corinth to do? You just agree to disagree? No, he said that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you. I want to ask this question tonight. Let's just say we have the attitude we're going to agree to disagree. What are we going to agree to disagree on? 
Are we going to agree to disagree on the deity of Jesus? What if somebody says, I don't believe Jesus Christ is the son of the living God? The Bible says that he is. Where will we stand? Somebody says, well, they're good people. They don't believe in Jesus as the son of God, but they're good people. They believe in God the Father. Well, Jesus said, except you believe that I am. The translators inserted the word he. Jesus said, unless you believe that I am, you'll die in your sins. We can't agree to disagree when it comes to the deity of Christ. Why? Because that is a cardinal doctrine of the New Testament. Well, what if somebody says, I don't believe baptism is essential to salvation. What if somebody were to tell you, we can just agree to disagree on that. You say you just believe in Christ and you're saved. I say you have to be baptized, but hey, it doesn't really matter. Is that, is that the case? What do you think these books say? Let me tell you what Jesus said. He that believeth, number one, and is baptized, number two, shall be saved, number three. That is a quotation. That's not my embellishment of what the Son of God said. That's exactly what the Son of God said. Now let me ask this question. If that's what Jesus said, why would I say anything differently? Do you mean to tell me that I can just agree to disagree on how I'm to become a Christian? Not on your life. Why? Because we're talking about the apostles' doctrine. We're not talking about what somebody else has said or written or espoused. We're talking about what Scripture says. Imagine that great number of people assembled on Pentecost Day. They had heard in convincing fashion that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. They were indicted. That's why... Luke said they were pricked or cut in their hearts. And they cried out and said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter said, Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. What if somebody had been present on that occasion and said, Now wait a minute, Peter. You don't know what you're talking about. You mean to tell me I have to be baptized into Christ? I thought I could just believe in Christ and be saved. Peter was an inspired apostle. I want to ask you this question. Did he know what he was talking about? You better believe he did. Well, somebody says we can just agree to disagree. Not so. If we're going to be united, the only basis we can be united is on what God says in his word. What about somebody saying, well, one church is good as another church. I don't see the difference. Again, let me just reference these three books. Three different denominations, religious organizations. Is there anything in a name? Does it matter what we call ourselves? Somebody says it really doesn't matter. I don't see, I don't see what the big deal is. I don't mean to be facetious, but if there's nothing in a name, 
go to Burger King and tell them you want a Big Mac. See what they say. There's something in a name. I can read about the church in Scripture. I can read about the church of God in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 1, 2. I can read about the churches of Christ. Romans 16, 16. I can read about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Those are biblical names. Now there's more than just a name involved in what we're talking about. But you see, there are a lot of people that say, well, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether or not you even affiliate with a church. Is that so? The Bible says we are to be baptized into Christ. When we're baptized into Christ, God adds us to the church. Acts 2, 47, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. Somebody says I can maintain a relationship with God the Father, Jesus Christ the Son, and I don't have to have any type of relationship with what we call organized religion or a church. That's awfully strange because in the New Testament, I find that those who were Christians were in the church. And those who were in the church were numbered among the saved. You see, you can't be saved outside of Jesus Christ any more than you can be saved outside the church of Jesus Christ. How do I know that? Because the Bible says in Ephesians 5.23, he is the savior of the body. Somebody says, we'll just agree to disagree on that. Well, we better be careful. We better make sure that what we're saying coincides with truth. Those are just some examples. But you see, there are a lot of people in our world today, that's the attitude. Well, you believe what you want to believe, I believe what I want to believe, and hey, we're all, we're all in this thing together. Well, there, there is a platform upon which we must stand. Peter said, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. Are we to be caustic and arrogant? In our dissemination of truth, no. We are to preach the truth in love, but we have to preach the truth. And Peter said, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. Whatever I have to say needs to have as its basis God's holy and divine word. If it's not in the scriptures, then we reject it. Now, I want to talk about the power of unity very quickly. What about when people are united, when they speak the same thing, when they're, when they're on the same plane? What does that say to the world? Listen again to what Jesus said in verse 20. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe on me through their word, that they all may be one. As you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. What a strong statement it says to the world when we are on the same plane religiously. One of the greatest arguments the infidel has is this. You folks can't even agree on what the Bible teaches. What they don't understand is a lot of folks, a lot of people 
are not using as their standard the scriptures. Paul said we are to walk by the same rule, the same standard. You see, 12 inches equate to what? A foot, right? That's true in the U.S. It's true around the globe. Why? Because it is a standard. The same is true when it comes to what the Bible says. So, when unity prevails in the religious world, what does it say? It says that Christianity is of divine origin. Two things Jesus points out in relationship to this. It is an affirmation. Number one, that God sent Jesus into the world. Look at verse 22. The glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. I and them and you and me that they may be perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me. When we are united, it is a testament to the world that God the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world, according to John in 1 John 4, 14. And then it is also an affirmation that God loves the world just as he loved Jesus. Listen to what he said. That the world may know that you sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. That's what it says. In closing tonight, let me just say this. Wouldn't it be great if we lived in a world today where every man, woman, and child believed that this book is the book of all books, that this book is the standard by which we measure everything religiously, this is the code, the law book, if you please, that we follow. I promise you that if everyone today would submit to what this book teaches, we could go a long way in being united. Jesus prayed for it. The apostles, they preached unity. The first century church, they sought to be united, and God the Father, Jesus the Son, would have us today to be united. It may be that you're here tonight, you're not a New Testament Christian. Could I encourage you to come to Christ? Could I tell you that God loved you, that he sent his son to die for your sins? The Bible says God commendeth his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What would you need to do? Well, believe that he's the son of God, repent of your sins, confess his name, be baptized into Christ rising to walk in newness of life. And then if you're here tonight, maybe you're not what you ought to be as a child of the living God. Maybe your life is far from what the New Testament teaches. Could I encourage you to come home? Could I remind you that God is willing to forgive? James said, confess your faults one to another. Pray one for another. Could we pray with you and for you tonight as we stand and sing?